0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: On the science revolution this week is Dr. Michael Mann on the new climate war. He shares how fossil fuel companies have waged a 30-year campaign to deflect blame and responsibility and delay action on climate change. Dr. Eric Feigelding drops by, warning us the coronavirus could be a thermonuclear pandemic. He'll also talk about the new COVID variants and what he would do differently. Severine Fleming from Greenhorns is here about food security, regenerative agriculture, and the hidden value of local food. Stay tuned. It's an honor and a pleasure to have one of the world's greatest climate scientists on this program, Dr. Michael Mann, the distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth System Science Center from Penn State University, member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of numerous books, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy, recipient of the Tyler Prize. And he has a new book out. It's called The New Climate war. And this is breathtaking stuff. Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Um, what what stimulated you to write this book?
0: The new climate war, what this is about is the challenges that we currently face. We're so close to achieving the action that we have sought for so long on climate. Um, we can feel it. We can taste it, especially with this new administration that is making climate action part of their first 100 days agenda. With first day of the Biden administration, we saw two very important climate actions rejoining the Paris Accord and blocking the Keystone XL pipeline. So we're so close, but we need to recognize that the forces of denial, the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists, are still working hard to prevent us from making the needed transition away from fossil fuels. And look, they can no longer deny the basic evidence, the science, the impacts, because they're playing out in real time. We can see that now. And so they haven't stopped in their effort to thwart action, but they have now evolved, they've changed their tactics, because they can't get away with denying the problem, but instead what they're trying to do is to deflect attention from the real solutions, the need to regulate carbon emissions, Um, they're trying to divide the climate advocacy community, getting us fighting with each other, for example, over lifestyle choices, um, so that we don't represent a united front demanding action, they're putting out false solutions, and in fact, they're actually purveying doom and gloom. They are fanning the flames of doomism. Uh, many you know, climate advocates of good intentions and goodwill have sort of fallen into despair, and they think it's too late to do anything about the problem. That's not true, but if you believe it's too late to do anything, that can lead you down the same path of inaction as outright denial. And so we have to be aware of the fact that the The inactivists are sort of fanning the flames of doomism as well to lead us to despair, because they don't care about the path that you take to inaction, to disengagement. They just care about the destination.
1: So how organized is this? Who are these players? What did you find as you dug into this?
0: So we know, uh, you know, a lot of the usual suspects, fossil fuel groups, dark money organizations, the Koch brothers, um, lobbyists, fossil fuel lobbyists, they're out there um, using every means at their disposal to sort of distort our public discourse over climate change and to fan the flames once again with these various tactics. But we also have to be aware that there are state actors involved as well. And Russia has played, unfortunately, a very prominent role in trying to disrupt efforts in other countries aimed at climate action. They've interfered with American politics. They've interfered with Canadian politics, with Australian politics. And they use bot armies and trolls online to foment discord and division. They get us fighting with each other. One of the ways they do that is by deflecting attention away from the needed systemic changes to individual behavior, as if it's all about just you and me, that that's where the onus resides rather than the overwhelming carbon footprint, which isn't ours, but it's the fossil fuel industry's footprint. So they'd like to distract us from that, make it all about us and our lifestyle choices, and then get finger pointing with each other about our carbon purity, about our diet, our travel, et cetera. Yep.
1: So, for example, it's been a few months, but I tweeted, you know, some story about climate change that was calling for a carbon tax and a number, I was surprised by how many, and and I went back and looked and many of them were, uh, this was on Twitter, a a number of these accounts had like, you know, five followers. I mean, they they were bot accounts over and over and over again. They were saying, well, what kind of car do you drive? You know, and how how many square feet in your house? And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, how come you're always on airplanes, Hartman? And, uh, you know, it's like, how do you even respond to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very effective, right? Because they instigate the debate dissonance um, online. But then other you know, people, again, of good intentions, get caught up in it. They mm-hmm. are victims of these efforts. They take the, the bait. They take the red meat. And so pretty soon, real people are shouting at each other and finger-pointing and, and talking about what you should be doing and, and why you're not doing everything you can. And you shouldn't are be you- talking about policy solutions if you don't have your own personal house in order. It is a way of deflecting attention from the needed solution. And at the same time, dividing us. It's a very clever strategy. And by the way, you know, Tom, we have some friends who are opinion leaders in this space, like Leo DiCaprio, for example, who has really led the effort to create public awareness when it comes to the climate crisis. And they love to attack him to um, misrepresent his, uh, you know, his, his lifestyle and his individual behaviors to try to discredit him as a as a hypocrite, right? Because mm. if they can do that, right. then he's no longer as effective a messenger.
1: The bottom line here, my understanding of how this works, you know, in in a macro sense, is that you and I can, you know, buy electric cars and 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 refuse to get on airplanes and and uh, keep our houses at fifty-five degrees and wear five sweaters. All we want, but it's not going to save the world. What we need is action at the level of government. And what these people are trying to do is either focus us on individual actions and say this is the only thing that you should be thinking about or even worse saying the people who are telling you that government action is necessary are hypocrites because they're flying on jet airplanes or even private planes for god's sake Um, when that's not the problem the problem is that we don't have a carbon tax
0: do i have that right absolutely it's a threefer uh, they accomplish three things at the same time. They deflect attention away from the needed policies, systemic solutions to individual behavior. Uh, they get us fighting with each other. So it's sort of a divide and conquer way of defeating the climate movement. And they tar some of our most important opinion leaders and communicators by painting them as hypocrites. And Leo DiCaprio uh, is one. We both know him and, and, yeah, and they, we know yeah. how earnest he Yeah, we he is both with worked him with him. But Al Gore yeah, so, and other leaders in that space, it's the same
1: game. Yeah. And is this being funded by the fossil fuel industry or is this being funded by other governments, the Saudi government, the Russian government, whatever, that are basically petro-states?
0: Yeah, so a lot of this really does come from the petro-states. Look, the fossil fuel interest and their front groups, they're doing a lot of these online ops as well. They're trying to divide us. They're using every means of, you know, at their disposable, and they are engaged in a massive mis You know, information campaign, the Koch brothers, Alec, and the Murdoch media empire, which works on their behalf. So, those are important players, and they're working synergistically with state actors like Russia, like Saudi Arabia, that see fossil fuels as their greatest asset. They don't want us to get off the burning of fossil fuels.
1: So, Dr. Mann, how bad is it? Where are we at? You know, we've obviously it's you know, things are not rosy on the one hand. And on the other hand, we're not doomed. There's still time and there are a lot of things we can do. Where in that middle ground are we as a nation and as a planet?
0: Well, yeah, you know, uh, they're related because, you know, we're much further down this highway than we ought to be. So that's a fact. And we have already locked in certain impacts that are going to persist at least for decades. Um, so much of the increased vulnerability that we have now to the effects of sea level rise, to unprecedented extreme weather events, the unprecedented floods and heat waves and wildfires and droughts and superstorms we've seen in recent years, some of that stuff is sort of locked in for the foreseeable future. Um, if you are Puerto Rico, dangerous climate change has arrived. If you're California, dangerous climate change has arrived. If you're the Gulf Coast, dangerous climate change has arrived. Uh, The low-lying island nations of the world, and so on. We're already subject to some very damaging, very dangerous climate change. And so the key thing to recognize here is that we can prevent it from getting worse while keeping those changes within sort of our adaptive capacity. If we can prevent further warming and further worsening of many of these impacts, it will still be within our uh, uh, capacity to adapt and the capacity of other living things. But if we go too far down this highway, um, we start to contend with truly devastating, catastrophic, irreversible changes in our climate. So there is great urgency. There's no question about that. But As I point out in the book, and I point out in every interview that I do, there is great agency. There is still time to make sure we don't worsen the problem, and that's where there's a little bit of good news in the science of the past decade or so, where we now understand that if we stop burning carbon, we prevent the planet from warming up uh, within a few years. So the, the temperatures actually stabilize within a few years of ceasing carbon emissions which means there's a direct impact there's a direct effect of the actions that we take today
1: if we stop burning carbon you're talking about the whole planet
0: yeah so we used to think tom that the warming would persist for decades into the future even if we stopped burning carbon and that's because of what we understood mm. you know, the oceans continue to warm up in response to the carbon pollution that's already in the atmosphere and the oceans have what we call thermal inertia they're sluggish so they do that for decades to come and that's true We call that committed warming. That would take us towards warmer temperatures. But offsetting that is something else. If we stop burning carbon, then the oceans are still pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Vegetation on land is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So CO2 levels start to come down if we stop burning carbon. That offsets this other effect, and you get a flat line. If you stop burning carbon now, surface temperatures flatten out within a few
1: years. That's great news. I don't think the world is going to stop burning carbon tomorrow, but we seem to be moving, hopefully we're moving in the right direction. What are the things that you would put at the top of the list and and how can people who are watching or listening to this program right now most effectively help those things come about?
0: we can do those individual behavioral changes that we talked about. You know, that all makes things better. So we should be better environmental stewards and decrease our personal carbon footprint. Often that makes us healthier, save us money, makes us feel better. Let's do all those things, but let us not fall into the trap of thinking that individual action is somehow a substitute for the changes that only our elected leaders can make, instituting policies that incentivize the shift, the collective shift away from fossil fuel burning. Now, the good news, Tom, here is that we are looking at a new day. We have an incoming administration that at the tone first day in office, the Biden administration demonstrated their commitment to climate action by blocking the Keystone XL pipeline, by re-engaging with the international community, signing back on to the Paris Accord. And and that's all good. Uh, Those are good first steps. But we have to go much beyond that. And we have to keep the pressure on even those we view as our friends, you know, politicians that perceive as being uh, in support of climate action. There are huge, powerful interests still out there trying to work the refs, trying to make sure that, they, that, that these policymakers don't do what's necessary to decarbonize our civilization. And we have to keep the pressure on ourselves. So we have to use our voices in every way possible. Voting is important and we used our votes to reposition ourselves in a place where we can now see some climate action. But we have to keep the pressure on. Biden administration is doing some good things. But look, we're going to have a 50-50 Senate, a closely divided Senate, and we need climate legislation. It can't just be executive actions by the administration. And they're doing a lot, and they're incorporating climate action into every single agency, every single cabinet position. So that's great. But executive action alone isn't enough. We need policies that will quickly decarbonize our society. And that means we need to get climate legislation through a 50-50 Senate. We're going to have to put pressure on conservative Democrats and on moderate Republicans. So we can not only get a climate bill onto the floor, onto the Senate floor, which will happen now under a, a Democratic majority leader, but that we can actually pass Climate legislation and I think we can do it and that's what we need to focus on within the next couple of years.
1: So back in the 1980s we had a real crisis uh, around the world actually but uh, here in the United States as well where buildings and monuments were literally crumbling because of sulfur dioxide, which was getting into our atmosphere and combining, you know the physics of this better than I, but my understanding is combining with what oxygen or carbon dioxide or something, turning into basically sulfuric acid and raining down on us. And George Herbert Walker Bush, the Republican president, put into place a cap-and-trade program where there was essentially a tax on the emissions of sulfur dioxide that Companies could trade back and forth, but uh, over time, it became more and more and more expensive to emit this stuff. Basically, a sulfur dioxide tax. Is a carbon tax the number one thing on your list? Something like that? Because we we solved that problem. Yeah, and that was actually
0: a cap-and-trade system. It was implemented by George H. W. Bush's EPA administrator, uh, William K. Riley. He was sort of an environmental hero. He went on to be a climate activist, headed up a climate non-governmental organization after he left the EPA. And so it shows you can even get progress, or at least in the past could, under uh, Republican administrations if you had people of good faith working together. And those market mechanisms, you know, should it be a cap-and-trade system? Should it be a carbon tax? And if so, how do we implement it so that it's progressive? We don't want frontline communities, those with the least uh, resources, low-income families and individuals. We don't want them to bear the brunt of this. They're the ones who are actually bearing the brunt of climate change impacts. And It would be a double whammy to make them pay the most for doing something about it. So it has to be done in a just way. And Canada is doing that. Australia had a carbon pricing system, an emissions uh, emissions trading scheme, somewhere between cap and trade and a carbon tax that um, actually ended up leading to more income for uh, low-income families and individuals because it was a progressive pricing policy where the revenue was returned preferentially to low-income earners. And we can do something
1: like that here. Yeah, it's just going to require the political will. Read all about it. The new book is The New Climate War by Dr. Michael Mann. Dr. Mann, it is always an honor and a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for dropping by, my friend.
0: Thank you. The honor and pleasure
1: is mine, my friend. Okay, Dr. Michael Mann. The New Climate War is the book.
2: <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana.
1: On the line with us is Dr. Eric Feigelding. Dr. Feigelding was the guy who back in January 20th, as I recall, of last year, And a long Twitter thread said, look out, it's coming, a thermonuclear pandemic. He is an epidemiologist and health economist. He's an adjunct senior fellow at the American Federation of Scientists, FAS.org, D-R-E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G, his Twitter handle. I follow him on Twitter. He's just always got really, really great stuff. And Dr. Feigelding, welcome back to the program. It's great having you with us. Where are we at right now with the coronavirus in general here in the United States?
3: Well, in the U.S., we're past several sobering milestones: twenty million cases and four hundred thousand deaths, and ICU still very, very full across the country. Basically, have lived through the third peak, third wave, however you want to call it, and we're we're not over because. Vaccines are coming, they're rolling out, but they're very rolling out very slowly. And just to put it into perspective, you know, we're vaccinating about 1 million a day, but consider that there's 330 million people in America, and each person probably needs two doses for most of the vaccines, uh, that would mean 660 days to vaccinate every American at the 1 million a day. And that is just way too slow. If we want to reopen our uh, yeah. country in terms of many things, we got to ramp that up. In so many ways and people also need to stop fighting vaccine hesitancy as well so we've still in the thick of this and its mortality is still gonna soar and we're gonna easily hit half a million dead but within next month or so so we're still in some deep trouble right now i caught a news story
1: and again this is just from the news so i don't you know it's not from a scientific source But apparently one of the countries that has been most efficient at distributing vaccine to their population has been Israel and that they've gotten such Mm a some some, you know, in the neighborhood of 30 plus percent of the population has gotten their first shot. And as a result, they're starting to see a rapid collapse in the number of new cases. Can you verify that? And what does that tell us? If that's the case, what does that tell us about what the American experience might be if we can get our act together?
3: Right. Israel has been leading the world in vaccinations. They're vaccinating at a pace that is like 10 times faster than most other countries on a per capita basis. So they've already done well over a quarter. They're approaching a third of their entire population having received at least one shot. So they're already seeing cases drop because of it. It's a good sign. They're also seeing the new variant, the British more contagious variant, B117 variant of the coronavirus. And that variant is a troublemaker because not only is it more 40 to 80% more infectious, around 60% more infectious, it's also possibly also deadlier. And I want to point out that infection, even if it wasn't more deadly in itself, which this one might be it could spread to more people and actually kill more just by the pure contagious nature of it, because we can find more vulnerable people. And right now, UK is completely slammed by it. Many European countries are seeing it. And the US, we're seeing it in like a dozen states, the new variant. It's likely, CDC says, that the new variant will overtake the country and become the dominant, this new contagious variant dominant by March. So we have now, a big race right now.
1: Right, I understand that the new variant is you know much more contagious. I don't understand exactly why. I've read some pieces suggesting that people expel more virus. Other pieces that the spikes are are more sticky, more velcro-like in terms of you know attaching to human cells, and therefore it takes fewer viruses being exposed to to produce the same kind of infection. What is the mechanism for that increased? A transmissibility and is that the sort of thing that could be handled. I, I saw this piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago that said it looks like normal procedures to control the virus are ineffective. Does that mean that we need a double mask? You know, there was one story about mm-hmm. how people in different hotel rooms in a hotel, but all on the same floor, sharing the same air system, were getting this new variant, whereas with the old uh, virus, it was largely confined to individual rooms because of the air filters. I guess were catching it or whatever. What do we know about this?
3: Right. So. What you heard is generally correct. What happens is that the, this new, uh, the spike protein, by the way, of any of these coronaviruses, they latch onto a human receptor, basically like a lock and key called an ACE2. And the smoother and tighter it binds the receptor, the more efficiently and faster it enters and invades your cell. Basically, you bind this receptor and voila, Access is granted into human cells and infection succeeds. And so the spike protein seems to be better for the mutated virus to be even faster at doing that, which means it can infect faster with a lower dose and replicate more and more and more. And this is why the viral load is higher and why also you'll also expel more viruses as well. And altogether, it doesn't mean that the traditional methods don't work. It's just means they don't work as well and you have to be extra vigilant. And so the new movement right now is, A, first of all, a lot of people don't wear cloth masks. And cloth masks are this communal thing where if 95% of the people wear them, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. But if half the people don't mask, then meh, that doesn't really help you because it doesn't protect you from inhaling viruses that much. So the new movement is mm-hmm. to switch to premium masks. A premium mask, I I mean, at minimum, a surgical mask, but preferably a KN95, a Korean KF94, the Europeans call it an FFP2. The regular N95 that hospitals use are still very rare and uh, in short supply, and so oftentimes we say, save those for the doctors. But there are N95s for like woodworking, which are almost as good, but they don't have the fluid splash protection. But altogether, we need to use these premium masks, these KN95 grade masks, because it really gives you the extra filtration of personal protection as opposed to mutual protection that the cloth masks have. So either double mm. mask, but preferably use these premium masks. And that's what you really need to do. And that's why the mask mandates, we have to be much more aggressive. You know, hence Biden administration put in the mask mandates in public buildings, federal buildings, as well as public transit. And we need to do this everywhere. And many other countries in Germany, Austria, and France, they now recommend or mandate it for any store, any shop, any grocery store you go into, that you can't just use regular masks anymore. You have to use one of these premium masks. There's still some shortages, but that's why it's so important, more important than ever.
1: What would you do if you were running this response to the pandemic right now?
3: Obviously, vaccine rollout, we have to do, like, wartime mobilization with National Guard and FEMA. And in terms of masking, we really have to mandate it everywhere. I and mean, we need to whip the states who are not willing to mandate it with carrots and sticks to make sure they mandate it. Because if we do it together, we can save so many lives, hundred 100,000 lives before this thing's all over. Because it really is a race so that we can get our schools back open again
1: and our economy back together and our lives back to normal. Dr. Eric Feigelding, you are doing such great work and I so appreciate what you're doing on Twitter. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you. Take care. Great speaking with you. His uh, Twitter handle is Dr. Eric, E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G. Strongly encourage you to follow Dr. Eric Feigelding. Severin Fleming is with us. Severin is a farmer, activist, organizer, and director of the Greenhorns, whose mission is to recruit and support incoming generations of new farmers. Greenhorns.org is the website, and Greenhorns is the Twitter handle. Severin, welcome to the program. Tell us about
2: Greenhorns. We believe that to survive on this planet, we humans had better start reforming our agricultural system. And so our mission is to support the entering generation of people who want to do that work. How do you do that? It is work. (laughs) We do it in a variety of ways. We publish a literary journal. We host workshops and trainings. We make films. We make educational curriculum. And we are very interested in providing a welcoming social network and social fabric for people trying to navigate a career in agriculture, which, as you can imagine, is a place that is not always that friendly. And I think it's important to talk about some of the dynamics in the countryside at this time, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, no, go for it.
2: Well, I think um, if you look at the the lineage of the organic movement in this country and you think about the -the back-to-the-land movement of the 70s and the counterculture and what became the organic sector um, in kind of more historical terms, that that's always been a countercurrent in American agriculture, the family farm has been a political idea since the time of the great settlement of this country and the claiming and dispossession of indigenous lands through the Louisiana Purchase, through the Homestead Act, through the whole institution of settler colonial project. So it's not um, unexpected that we would be confronting a crisis in these narratives and in the economy that we currently inhabit. And I think if we're talking about the kind of white supremacy and militarism and anxieties that are being expressed now in rural areas, particularly, which have been communities profoundly impacted by the decline in our natural resource economies and identities. So let's say that more concretely. Rural places have been stripped and strip mined in terms of their agricultural production, moving towards monocultures for export moving away from the family farm in terms of forestry and the closure of mills because of the decline in those resources, because of mine declining. So you have this kind of, I think not just anger about material prosperity and jobs decline, but I would argue there's also an element in that that is to do with a grieving of the death of the earth. And I think unless we're coming from a place of compassion, especially as young people entering the scene and saying, we want to, start small farms, we want to grow local food, we want to make vegetables happen for the children, unless we're coming from a place of compassion to understand that these are rural communities that have been profoundly impacted by a structure of global extractive economics, then we're not going to be able to be peacefully neighbors with all that is going on in this country at this time. And I yeah, think that's that the point. Sense. It's not about an urban analysis all the time. It's also about making peace with what is. There is no whole place to go. Our job is to heal now.
1: I grew up in Michigan. I, I was born there and I, and I lived there for 28 years. I left in 1978 and I had friends who were farmers. We lived on the edge of Lansing and there was farmland all around us. My wife's grandmother had a farm that she lived on where her mother you know, was raised. I remember in the 80s when Reagan stopped enforcing the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act that suddenly the big ag companies just came in and wiped out the family farms in Michigan. Willie You know, this, this country music singer was. Yeah, Willie farm Nelson. Aid. Thank you. Was doing farm aid, you know, trying to raise money to help these farmers save their family farms and things like that. But, the, you know, basically big ag was destroying the farms and then buying them up. And, and, and I actually had a friend who ended up losing his farm and then renting the house that he, that he was born in from one of these big ag companies and working his own farm that used to be his own land. How has that dynamic changed over time? And and is that still a big issue for people who want to start a, a small farm?
2: Well, it just points to the fact that we need alternative construction. So in the case of the Young Farmers Movement, we've had tremendous success in successionally succeeding on lands that are organized, for instance, through community supported agriculture meaning it's a box Mm -hmm. that comes once a month, the farmers are paid ahead in the season, and you have a social finance method that acknowledges the needs of the farmer and the needs of the community. Similarly, if we want the farm, we have to save it, so you have more and more alternative forms of land conservation proliferating, social finance proliferating. We have a project called Agrarian Trust that's a land commons project that's essentially succeeding because of crowd financing land purchases, If we want the farm, we have to save it. It's not just going to happen. That's very clear. (laughs) And so I think instead of thinking about this moment as one of white flight and displacement and no affordable housing in rural areas because the technology workers are all fleeing into every little shed, I think we really have to commit to a holistic reform of our food system.
1: Yeah. That is brilliant. Severin Fleming, Greenhorns.org is the website. Greenhorns is the Twitter handle. And uh, we'll be speaking at Bioneers.org. Severin, thanks so much for dropping by. It's fascinating talking
3: with you. Uh, Great presentation. Thank you so much.